Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode nine of Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. Happy International Women's Day to everyone out there. We are super excited to share today's episode with our guest, Mandy Haberman. This episode will look at the patent system and the challenges faced by innovators to turn an idea into reality. Mandy shares with us her amazing innovation story and how she made bold moves to grab industry attention and secure her position in the market. We are super excited about today's episode, and without further ado, let's jump right in. So welcome, Mandy, to Innovation Capital. Really excited to have you join us today, and would love to kick off with your story, Mandy, as a successful British female inventor, entrepreneur, how you ended up in the wonderful world of technology and IP. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, it's it's quite a story, actually, (laughs) and it goes right back to um, the early 1980s uh, makes me feel incredibly old. Um, so I, I started out as a graphic designer and then I, I had my three kids and um, becoming an inventor was never the plan. <laughs> it just uh, was a response to circumstances and opportunities. Um, my youngest daughter was born with some problems um, and she couldn't feed and she was fed with tubes and things. And um, I had to improvise uh, to find a way to feed her in order to take her home from hospital. And that was really where it all started um, because that improvised idea worked. And then because I felt so, I don't know, I felt that I was in a, quite a privileged position in a way I I, we'd we'd had this experience and I had a design background so sort of problem solving background um, and I'd found a solution to the problem so it's not so much I looked at it as a commercial opportunity because that certainly wasn't the case at the time but I just felt really strongly that there ought to be a product out there to help babies that couldn't feed so I took my seed idea and developed it into a product. Um, Commercial companies weren't interested because it was niche market. And that's kind of how I became an entrepreneur, really out of necessity, because I really wanted to get that product out there. And it was down to me to do it. So that was my first um, touch with intellectual property. Um, And it came in very handy for what happened next which was I developed something which was called the Anyway Up Cup um, which was the world's first totally non-spilled children's training cup I mean prior to that cups have been a bit like watering cans you know a child would drink from it and then turn upside down and sprinkle it all over the floor Um, so I developed one that was controlled by valves and that's really when I got into the whole IP thing Um, 
into international patenting and patent enforcement and lawsuits and everything else. So, yeah, that's kind of how it all happened. So it was never it was never a, pl- a, a planned career choice, put it that way. It was um, responding to opportunities, really. So that's fascinating, Albert, a personal challenge the unique inspiration to invent and, and address a pain point that you are personally experiencing. That, that's fascinating because we have, we work with so many leaders who have built great startup companies or larger businesses where the genesis is a personal pain. But if you're going back all those years, um, we're really looking at kind of diversity and uh, gender equality here at PatSnap. It's just front of mind for us internally and externally with our customers. So what were some of the nuances and if they were challenges around that, around that being a female entrepreneur, a parent, and trying to scale a business and and trying to get buy-in from the from the tech community, I guess the challenges were twofold. The challenges were the sorts of challenges that any mum with a young family faces when they're trying to work and build a business. The juggling act, if you like, um, and. The other one, the other challenges were the same that any entrepreneur faces, you know. Um, so I, I guess because I've always been my own boss, so I've never been in that sort of corporate situation um, where you feel discriminated against because you're a woman. In fact, it's never really crossed my mind it's never been in my head that I'm at a disadvantage because I'm a woman it's just you know I'm a person and everybody faces challenges I guess I mean you know the whole um being a young mum and starting a business um it is a challenge because my husband was at work and you know he was doing the nine to five thing and I was going and having business meetings with a, a small toddler on my lap. Um, I remember sitting opposite, um, uh, when I, this was when I was doing the Haberman feeder. Um, I was sitting in a meeting with a consultant to discuss you know, the medical issues that I was trying to solve. And I had all my papers and everything organized and my toddler was sat on the floor and then she just suddenly threw all the papers up in the air. Um, and. <laughs> Everything became a lot less formal after that. <laughs> um, and also it was the days before mobile phones and, and trying to get back to p- pick children up from nursery school and getting stuck on trains and um, yeah, pretty nerve wracking. But I guess every mum has those sort of problems when you're trying to work as well. So it's not specific to IP. And thinking about IP as an early stage startup company, it's interesting. We recently done an episode on trying to cover and raise awareness around IP as an asset class, especially for university spin-outs or mom and pop shops who have an invention or have an idea and IP isn't front of mind as the first piece of blocking and tackling to focus on. So, so what was it like when you were building your business? Because it's quite rare for an entrepreneur to really focus on IP and, and be really serious about it at the early stage. So what was the story behind that? Because that, that sounds quite unique. Um, I mean, I think 
the fact, I mean, I, I certainly knew nothing about IP other than I'd heard the word patent and that was about it. Um, I, I had a, well, somebody I made friends with when I was doing my various research bits um, for the Haberman feeder. Um, and he was an IP lawyer. And he said to me, oh, you, you need to go and see a patent agent um, because, you know, you might be able to get a patent. And that's kind of where it all started. Um, yeah, sorry. Do you want to just ask me the question again? I can't remember what you were getting at. Yeah, in terms of getting your arms around that, not being from purely an IP background, what was it like understanding the asset, executing on the IP strategy as, as an early stage company with with just a, a, an early stage idea, what was your process? Because it's quite rare entrepreneurs yeah. focus on that early in the process. Okay, so I, I think um, I must have been advised to do a search uh, because I went along to what was then the patent library, which was, you know, there was nothing online. Nobody was using computers at that point. Well, I wasn't anyway. Um, the patent library you had to climb up ladders and get these great great sort of dusty volumes down from the shelves and pour over them but um i spent about three days searching the patent database or the, the volumes anyway to see if there was any prior art and i think that that's a really important first step and it's something that i think many people overlook um right from the beginning I just feel there is absolutely no point in spending time, effort and energy um, developing something and putting money into it and putting everything that you, you know, your blood, sweat and tears into it, um, only to find out that you've, you know, kind of reinvented the wheel. And um, it's so important to do that early patent search. And somebody must, uh, somebody along the line must have said to me, you want to go to the patent library and see what's out there. Um, but I I think because I was so in, well, I had no experience, inexperience, I had absolutely no experience. Um, I didn't look at the bigger picture. You know, I saw myself as doing, I saw this as a, a my invention. I'd have a, a UK patent um, and maybe a UK trademark. Um, it didn't occur to me that this might grow and I'd need patents elsewhere. Um, and I learned that the hard way because when um, I came, the, the Haberman feeder was, was very successful in its field and orders started coming in um, from abroad. And, you know, my house was full of boxes. I had three children under the age of three and, you know, it was, it was crazy something had to give so I wanted to license out the export side but of course I only had a UK patent um, but I was fortunate in that I had know-how um, I mean know-how is an intellectual property you could call it a trade secret as well um, and I managed to find a Swiss company to license the overseas side to um, based on the know-how and the trademark and it grew from there. You know, it, this wasn't huge, but it gave me um, 
a, a steady small income for many years, but it also financed my next project, which was the Anyway Up Cup, which turned out to be a huge commercial success. So, you know, I learned from not having had overseas patents and not having a full portfolio of IP. Um, I learned the importance of intellectual property. So when I did the Anyway Up Cup, um, I had PCTs, I applied for patents in all my major markets. I couldn't afford to go worldwide. Um, so I just worked out which were the most important markets and I patented, I, I got patent protection in, in those countries. Um, kind of working on the principle, you know, if, if somebody was going to set up um, a copycat product in China and sell it into the other countries, I probably wouldn't even know about it anyway. And that, that um, strategy worked very well, in fact. And also, I, I learned the importance of trademarks as I went along, um, because, you know, patents, as it turns out, you know, having had to enforce my patents through the courts for the cup, um, made me realise that patents are really very volatile as um, an intellectual property and you should have a, everything you can around it. So trademarks are huge. Brand is so important um, and design rights and everything else. You know, my, my, my patents have caused me lots of aggravation over the years, but the trademarks, you know, they, they sit there quietly and they earn money and they, they provide a good wall of intellectual property. You know, it, you can lose a patent in a... a if you have a, a dispute with somebody in court, but your brand goes on. So that's kind of the importance of trademark, really. And it, it took me a while to learn that. And also, Maddie, jumping into the world of licensing, what, what did that initial process look like? So it looks like you made a clear decision not to just scale out a manufacturing facility and kind of go direct to consumer. And I'm guessing you create a, created a partnership with a player in the market but yeah I mean what, yeah what, what did that look like entering the world of licensing with a big box player and and navigating that first time around could, could you walk us through that journey because that sounds fascinating yeah again I mean I, I've learned a lot of lessons um <laughs> as I've gone along when I started out I had no intention of actually um setting up my own company and selling products to consumers but because I couldn't find somebody to you know the books tell you what they did then you know entrepreneurship was wasn't a popular or fashionable thing to do um back in the eight, 1980s it was very much um you know if you've got an idea you license it out to a big company um and then you sit back and you take a royalty but the reality is and i i learned that big companies they might get very excited about your intellectual property, but they would far rather not have risk. So they would far rather wait for you to spend your money getting it to the market and see how it goes. And if it's successful, then talk to you about licensing or infringe and then be forced to talk to you about licensing. Um, but it's very difficult to get something licensed until you've proven it in the market. So the way that I generally work, in fact, I've always worked now, um, 
is to bring the product to market, even if it's only in a small way, to get consumer endorsement, to, to prove the product, and then talk to people about licensing. And as I've gone along, once you gain a reputation, once you gain a reputation for successful innovation, then it becomes, there are more opportunities that, that, that come your way. Um, I, I recently formed a very exciting partnership um, with a very major Asian company and I'm creating products for them. So I'm innovating, I own the IP, but it's for this particular company. But up until that point, I have found that companies are quite cynical about the IP. If it's not invented here, it's the not invented here syndrome. So if you're the little guy and you have IP and you're offering it to a major company, they can be quite cynical. The first thing they're going to do is, can we get around this patent? Can we use this idea but get around the patent? And if they can, they will. Um, and if they can't, if they're ethical, they'll, they will then talk to you about a license. If they're not ethical, then, then infringe and wait to see what you're going to do about it. And, and so with the anyway up cup, what was that like? Because that sounds like an absolute huge success globally from, from what we've learned about that particular invention. What did it look like in the formative years when it was really ramping and sales are going well? Could you describe that, that initial <laughs> excitement when you've really landed an invention in the market, it's got great traction, the sales numbers are off the charts. I can see you won a Millennium Product of the, of the Year in 2000 and, and numerous other awards there. Mandy, so what, what was it like, that journey, and who did you end up partnering with? Just those initial couple of years, what, if, if you could walk the audience through that, because that sounds like a fun journey. It, it was quite extraordinary. Um, so when I started, I, I created my working prototype and I went to see a number of commercial companies in, in the UK and in mainland Europe um, to try and offer a license. You know, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and none of them took a license or they didn't, they didn't offer sensible numbers. Um, I mean, they weren't, it wasn't gonna be viable as a, as a negotiation. But there was one company um, who, talked sensible numbers and was very excited about it and then didn't return my prototype and weren't returning my phone calls, et cetera, et cetera. So I ended up walking around with a cup in my bag for about a year, um, full of juice, of course, not spilling. Um, and I thought this is madness. You know, I, I know I've got something which is going to sell well because everybody that had tried it, tried the working model that I'd created, um, said, well, when can we have it? We want one, we want one. I mean, I, I knew, you know, a cup that saved mums from having to spend hours mopping the floor every day was going to be a success. Um, but I couldn't find the right people. I couldn't find the right partners. And in the end, I teamed up with two sort of marketing entrepreneurs. They said, look, you know, forget about licensing. Take it to, you know, there's no online things going on at this time. Take it to a couple of trade shows and see what the response is like, which we did. 
and it was phenomenal. I mean, we took £10,000 worth of sales, well, um, advanced sales, because actually it wasn't in production yet, um, based on, on the working model. And this is like a, a, a £2.99 item. So to get £10,000 worth of sales from you know two days at a show was pretty good. It kind of gave you the flavour of what was to come. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, it was all chaotic. <laughs> um, I spent about three weeks practically sleeping with a, on the floor of a local factory till we got our tooling set up, made and, sorry, not three weeks, three months. It was about three months to go from what was a working model through to full production. That's extraordinary. I mean, I don't know how on earth we did it, but that's what we did. And that was, you know, including having tooling made. It was extraordinary. Um, and we started off by supplying the people that had ordered from the shows. And they were mostly like uh, people that ran nurseries and people that ran small shops and that kind of thing. But we knew to be viable with a commercial product, we needed to get into the supermarkets. And we sent them flyers and we sent them pictures and price lists and everything else. But none of them were interested because we were a one product company. Um, so, I, you know, I guess it was a standard response and the things that we'd sent them ended up in the bin, basically. And I thought, this is mad. You know, I, I know I've got a fantastic product and I know it's going to sell. I've got to get it onto the shelves because, you know, obviously no online sales. This is pre-online sales. Um, it's got to be in the supermarkets. So because they'd already said no, OK, we we took a very big gamble, a massive, massive risk. We took one of my cups, we filled it full of blackcurrant juice, put the lid on, and we put it inside a white cardboard shoebox. No cling film or plastic bags or anything like that, just a box full of juice rolling around in a white cardboard box. And we sent it through the post to the head bar of Tesco's, which is, um, Tesco's is like one of the main supermarket chains in the UK. And we put a little note inside that said, um, if this arrives as a soggy mess, then you know we've shot ourselves in the foot. But if it arrives and it hasn't spilt, could you give us a call? And we sent this thing through the post um, and the Royal Mail and posted it off. You know, anything could have happened. It could have got crushed, anything. You know, we could have been sued by the post office. I mean, we were bonkers madness um anyway four days later i mean my, my colleagues were sort of chain smoking because that's what people did then um and i was chewing my nails and four four days later the phone rang and it was the head bar of tesco's ringing us which is extraordinary and she said this is amazing and i want it and we were on shelves within a couple of months maybe you've got a pipe fill and do everything you know, we could have sent all of the literature and even if we'd have been able to send a video, it would have made no difference. But putting the magic in her hands, you know, suddenly she she got it. She could understand what it was all about. And it was amazing. You know, there's a dirty great hole in the spout. You can see the juice through the hole and yet it's all stayed in the cup, and not a drop spilled. Um, 
And that, you know, it just took off from there onwards. I mean, it was phenomenal. And we, we, we'd had, I don't think we even wrote a business plan because the figures, the numbers just kept changing so dramatically. We were off the scale all of the time. Um, you know, sales doubled, quadrupled, just went berserk. And we ended up, we ended up with 40% market share in the UK. Crazy. That sounds absolutely insane, Mandy. So just pausing there, who was the person who came up with that idea of just putting it in a shoebox and just sending it out to the head of well, the decision maker at Tesco's? What was it? I'd love to hear that story because that sounds like a stroke of genius. Yeah, well, there were, there were three of us. There were my, my two colleagues and myself. Um, and my, one of my colleagues was very much a sort of a marketing man. Um, and it, that's how the, the idea was born between us. Um, yeah, but it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, not something I would advise anybody else to do. Because it, it's interesting because it, it, it's famous, right? I think there's even a, a book composed on trying to get inside Tesco and how difficult it is. I literally, I think I've seen something on Amazon. It, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, there's a book which covers the playbook on trying to penetrate that scale of of organization so, it, so no, no, check it out mandy literally it is online yeah. on how to get into i think it's tesco's or sainsbury's one of the yeah. big box retailers it's just super difficult and i have met folks over the years who said oh god they haven't replied in seven months and you kind of got a, a little bit of shelf space and it's like a little corner on the bottom of an aisle yeah and it takes them 18 months so i just want to, i just want this to just synthesizes so from getting that reply from the decision maker at tesco saying wow this is amazing to ramping sales to six or seven figures what was that timeline because that is interesting did you recall directionally what that looked like um well put it this way we launched the cut and we were into tesco's in that first year by the end of the first year, we'd sold half a million cups. And that was only like nine months of trading. And then it went to something like uh, two million and then four million. And then once, and, and that's, and then when it got to about the, the four million mark, I think that's right, I'm trying to remember the dates, it's a long time ago. Um, that was when the infringement occurred. Um, obviously, you know, you, you know it's going to happen. The, the company that didn't return the prototypes and wouldn't return my calls, guess what? They came into the market with um, a product that was so like my early prototype. Um, it was ridiculous. Um, and, but because they were a big brand, a very well-known brand that had been around forever, um, they just took two-thirds of our sales practically overnight. Um, and that faced us with the whole problem, you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, and the outcome of that was we enforced the patents through the courts and stopped them. Um, but once we, once that happened, then, um, you know, that's when we started getting to the sort of the 10 million sales and such like. Well, so, so post Tesco's, did it go global then with other big box players globally? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think in our first year or 18 months 
uh, so hard to remember the timeline exactly, but certainly before to the, for the second, the end of the second year of trading, we had licensed a big American company. Um, so they were making, using my technology, but making their own product and they were selling. So, you know, when they say got to sort of 10 million, it was with them selling their product as well as me selling our own, our own brand as well. Um, but it just, it just, revolutionized the market in trainer cups you know i i mean um by around about the year 2000 so this is after it's been going about three years um we had infringements that started up in america um and by the time we were sort of gathering the evidence for enforcing the patent there um there was something like uh, 40 million cups using my technology being sold every year. Massive. Okay, so now we're playing a different game, right? Because you're now you are the target where you're just absolutely crushing it in terms of sales volume. And, and it's normally when you're really successful. Um, you're now in that situation. So how did you and the team get your arms around that? during those years, obviously it looks like the first situation you guys were successful on, on enforcing your IP, but was it fighting fires everywhere for a number of years? And if so, how did you guys tackle that and, and, and make sure that you were enforcing well and, and scaling the business? Um, so there was, Various things happened along the way. Um, so by the time I did the UK litigation, I had licensed my colleagues. So I wasn't running that business. I wasn't a shareholder in that business, but I owned the IP. So we did that litigation together. But in the state, well, first of all, we had infringements happening in Europe um, and my colleagues didn't want to get involved with further patent enforcement, obviously, because it's hugely risky, um, financially risky. Um, so it was down to me to enforce the patent rights. Um, I did an action in the Netherlands, um, something called a court getting procedure, which was really clever because it was, instead of being a great big expensive courtroom and everything else, it was a small um, hearing in front of a judge, which kept the costs right down. But the great thing about this procedure that they had in the Netherlands was that it rolled in the manufacturer who was in Thailand. I didn't have a Thai patent, but this, this Thai company was selling infringing product through lots of different small distributors all over Europe. So by doing it in, in the Netherlands, I took an action against one of the distributors and it rolled in the, the manufacturer, which was fantastic because otherwise I could have stopped one distributor 
and then another one would have popped up and then another one would have popped up. It would have been a nightmare. So I did that. And then in America, we had a situation, we had our licensee in America and they looked at taking action against the infringements that were going on, but because of their shareholders and the risks, they decided that they weren't going to do it. So then it kind of fell to me to make the decision whether or not to do it. And the infringers had a much greater market share than my licensee had. So actually there was a lot to be made out of enforcing the rights. Um, and I managed to find, I mean, take, taking legal action in the UK is horrendously expensive, particularly if you're doing it in your own personal name. I mean, I had to risk my house, I had to risk my kids' education and everything. I mean, we would have been bankrupt if I'd have lost, thank God I won. Um, but in America, you know, you can times that by about four or five. It's hugely expensive and it can go on for years and years. But I managed to find a law firm who was willing to take it on partial contingency, which meant that my exposure was capped. Um, I had to pay the, the court fees, but I didn't have to pay my legal costs. They, they would cover the legal costs. Um, and that made it feasible. Um, so I was able to take action against two major infringers um, and it all ended very happily, put it that way. <laughs> and what was it like being, obviously I can, I'm guessing your children would have been, uh, you've you got a young family, lots to manage at home. You're now in a world of where you're scaling unprecedented sales, you're enforcing patent rights globally. What was it like to kind of manage that balance of work, home life uh, yeah. situation? Because I, I know from myself, when you're scaling a business, especially in the formative years, it, it's crazy. So how did you get your arms around that and, and navigate that, that challenge? It's all about finding the right people um, and finding the right team of people. I, and I've always worked from home. So, I mean, you know, now we've got the pandemic and everybody's working from home. You know, for me, it's a double. I've always worked from home and I run my team from home. Um, and I found that has enabled me to have a good work-life balance. Um, and thank God for mobile phones, because, you know, I can be doing the school run or, or whatever. Um, and nobody knows I'm not in the office, but I'm, I'm still working. Um, I, th I think what is hugely important is to know what you want from life. Um, to me, having a good balance around family and work has always been an essential. Um, I think that I don't know, maybe it's a male-female thing, I don't know. But I look at um, look at James Dyson. Okay, James and I are similar age. And he started with his vacuum cleaners 
um, when I was starting with the Anyway Up Cup and we trod a similar path. You know, he had infringements, he had to fight. He was working out of the pig shed at the back of his garden and, you know, I was working from home. My ambition, if you like, was to, yes, make lots of money, um, but my ambition, I, I you know, when I started out, I never saw myself as having a global business um, making millions. I saw myself much more as a sort of, well, cottage industry is probably an underestimate, but I, my perspective was much smaller. James, on the other hand, his perspective was much bigger, much grander. He was out to conquer the world. I did. I never wanted to conquer the world. Um, so you know, I, I made my millions, and that's fine. You know, he, he went global. He conquered the world, and he's worth billions now. And, and that might be a male female difference. I, I don't know. But my ambition was never have a, have a massive massive global business and be floating on the stock exchange and all of that it never really came into it for me oh, so, so I, you had that kind of advanced mental cap already of this is how i'd like to shape the business and have that healthy work-life balance and if i can get there happy days yeah I, I think that's right i mean as it is it it grew beyond my wildest expectation and my wildest dreams i think had i have had that sort of huge ambition, I might have made some different decisions along the way. Um, but as it is, I'm, you know, I'm happy. I've got, I've, I'm happy with my lifestyle, I'm happy with my life, and I'm happy with how things have turned out. So I, I think it's important to know what you want from life. And where are we today with, I've literally got, this is amazing because I, once we're finished, I'm going to run downstairs and tell my wife because my, my son probably uses your technology. I had no idea that you're the original inventor and, and we love it because he's he can be so challenging where he's going to score right beater on our sofa. So <laughs> I feel you're literally the other day, I think he was not using your technology and just holding a cup. And I was saying to my wife, honey, um, grab Carter. He's about to, and we to scramble and rugby tackle him. So. I, the, the product market fit, complete no-brainer. I can see how, God, back in 1990-2000, where the head of Tesco's who makes the decision quickly replied back and say, let's speak. But <laughs> where are we now in the journey? So say 2018 onwards, is the business still scaling the same way? Is the product market fit still compelling where the numbers are still growing and and the business is frothy? Well, the Anyway Up Cup, um, the, the patents have now expired. I mean, you know, we're, we're a long time on from there. Um, but the technology is still being used worldwide. I mean, it did, you know, non-spill valve trainer cups are the standard now. They're everywhere. Um, and that was kind of, you know, that's my bit for humanity and <laughs> change the market. Um, I've moved moved on. I mean, since then, I've done um, a, a baby's feeding bottle, which addresses the whole um, obesity problem. 
because obesity starts right from the very early months of life from overfeeding with bottles. Um, and it's very important that the baby doesn't have their, um, their I think what, what you'd call it is a sort of um, instinct to stop when you're full. You know, they're born with it, but from day one that gets compromised because they're being fed too fast and too much with bottles. So I developed a bottle that worked in the same way as a breast works and the baby has to actively suckle to feed. Um, that went licensed out um, and was sold globally, but it you know, you've got to find the, the right product at the right time. You know, we're at a time now where bottle feeding is so frowned upon. Um, and so to market a bottle, even if it's much, much better than any other bottle and makes the baby um, feed in the same way as they would be from the breast, that became a very difficult sell. So you also have to know when to let go. Um, and I put awful lot of money and an awful lot of effort into that project um, but the timing was just wrong and I recognized that um, but because of doing that it led me to uh, being at a particular show in uh, Cologne I think it was um, a trade fair and I was there because of that bottle and I had meetings because of that bottle and that led on to the most amazing opportunity, which is what I've been doing over the last couple of years, um, which is creating a new range of products for a very major Asian company um, who, of course, you know, the route to market there is phenomenal because I've created the intellectual property. They are setting up the tools and it's gonna to be released either later this year or early 2022. Um, and they have huge, huge distribution. I mean, the numbers are phenomenal. So that, to me, it's a very exciting relationship because if I innovate and create products, that's what I'm best at. Um, they are best at selling in vast number. Um, so having this sort of partnership, it's like a marriage made in heaven. And what is that technology? Are you at liberty to share this new exciting project, Mandy? Um, it's <laughs> yes and no. It's all in the realm of infant feeding because that's where I specialise. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I'm going to tell you for the moment. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, well, great news. You're in the APAC market. It's a, it's a it's a geography we've been in since God 2008, and 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 there's got so much growth and also fascinating learning. So that sounds like a, a great part of your, your adventure. So on a broader level, so you've had these absolute smash hits along the journey as being, and what's interesting about your story, it seemed like you got to shape the business in a way where you focus on what you love to do, Mandy. Is absolutely, invent, yeah, that's and, absolutely right. And just focus on, the things which bring joy and not people, operations, distribution. Where does that come from? Because there's not many entrepreneurs who are as clear-minded as you, Mandy, where they've got this clear conviction and clarity on what they enjoy and don't enjoy. And it sounds like you made that decision really early in your journey. 
which is quite rare. I, 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 that way I was just curious, what, that, how did that occur? Okay, so do you remember I said to you that um, I met somebody when I was doing the feeder who told me to go and see a patent agent, okay? Um, this guy is, um, he was an IP lawyer, but he, attorney, but he retired and what he, he enjoyed doing most was acting as a consultant to help people make the decisions of what they wanted and how you achieve what you want. You know, what are, what are your goals? What do you really want out of life and how you achieve that? And I had a session with him. He's been very instrumental in my life, hasn't he? <laughs> Um, I had a very good session with him and he made me think about those questions. You know, it's not all about growing and making more and more money and getting bigger and bigger and climbing that greasy pole. It can be for some people, you know, for some people that makes them happy, but that's not what I really wanted from life. And he made me focus on what it was, what pressed my buttons, what are the important things? And um, the important things for me are my family, um, now my grandchildren, being able to spend time with them. Um, the important things before this awful pandemic, um, we have a place in France and going over there and spending time in the sun, you know, that's what quality of life is about. What's it all for? Growing and growing. If you've got a great goal, if that's what gives you pleasure, that's absolutely fine. But otherwise, you've got to you've got to know what it is that makes you happy. So now you've had these whole series of successes, and you've got this really exciting project in Asia. What, what does your day to day look like now, Mandy? In terms of the body of work, where where, where do you spend well, your time? Um, so I'm, I'm still running my team from home, obviously, and now everybody's working from home. Um, I have a team of people who um, are engineers, designers, um, and I have my sort of CEO who's my sort of finance and he gets the funding and sorts all that side of things out. Um, I'm doing the, the bits that I'm best at. You know, I've got the team that fill the gaps about doing the things that I don't really want to do. Um, and I'm I'm doing the innovation. The I look at identifying where there are problems and where there is a need and where those opportunities are, and I innovate and I come up with solutions, and then I work with my designers and my engineers. Um, it's a very nice, very comfortable way of working. Mandy, it seems like you've been prolific with that methodology so when it comes to surfacing and trying to understand unmet needs and and then wrap that into design is there a process that you've deployed throughout the years which leads to your secret source is there a methodology which which works really well well my my methodology is first of all identifying the need the opportunity or the problem whatever you want to call it um then it's very quickly into searching, searching patent databases, which of course is now so much easier. Um, and 
looking online as well because not everything gets patented so you know there are things that are prior use as well as prior art um, and then I'm very much a hands-on person so I, I start by making models and bits made out you know very um in the UK we had a, a television program for children called Blue Peter which ran for years and years for generations oh, where they, remember. <laughs> okay remember Blue Peter where, you know so it's very much Blue Peterish. you know I make models with anything that's to hand with bits and pieces just to sort of get what's in my head into something tangible in my hands and then I start working from that point and it's very much about proving the concept. So, you know, I've got this idea and I think it might work like this and how, how does that handle and how does that work? Getting the concept sorted. And then I get my engineers and designers involved. Um, and they, they, because I'm not an engineer, I, I wish I had studied engineering, it would have made life much easier. But, um, so I, I'm able to communicate what it is I'm after and then they do the next step and they do all the sort of computerized stuff, which um, I've, I can't do. I can't <laughs> focus with anything like that. Um, but they do all the modeling and the stress testing and that kind of thing. So whereas years ago, I would go from making a sort of hodgepodge model to then um, having certain bits and pieces made for me to try out so that I could develop a prototype. Um, a lot of it now is done on the computer and the modeling and everything else. And it, it will go from the what's on the CAD, it will then go into pre-production pre, pre prototype tooling. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it goes. But the, the IP is a huge part of it. So um, I'll do that searching initially myself. And when I think that we're on to something that might have legs, I'll do the next step and sort of just get the concept so that I've got something that I can talk about to a patent agent um, and talk to my engineers to make sure that what I'm suggesting is gonna be feasible. And then I'll go to a patent agent and talk to them about it. These days, I mean, I don't know what it's like where you are, but in the UK, um, a lot of the, intellectual property office a lot of the stuff is now um online and they're digitizing everything so more and more um you'll be able to do things yourself before having to employ um a, an ip professional which is great um so i will talk to my ip attorney and we'll sort of work out a strategy um i'll, I'll do a sort of invention record which they then work from when I'm at a stage where I think, yes, we, we think we have a patent, we can work on this. Because often what happens is, you know, you start working on something and the engineering of it, and what you would have put, if, if you'd have patented too early, you find that the product actually develops and, and morphs and changes, and actually what you want in the patent might be slightly different. And, and many, well, not many times, several times I have patented to get the earliest priority date um, and then found that I've had to do a second patent because actually everything that I want to put in is not in that first patent. 
and you know that can get expensive so it's better it's, it's a real balance on the timing because you you want to get an early priority date but it's working out when to actually file for, for a patent because you want to know that there's a, a revenue stream in sight um, so that you don't end up spending out a lot of money before you know that there's going to be money coming in um, because patents get very expensive. So the timing is all important. Sorry, I think I'm drifting. I can't remember what the question was. No, Mandy, this is awesome. This is the whole part of it. Literally, feel free to go off piece. This is absolute gold dust because we have we have so many listeners who are will see you as a role model, Mandy, to be fair. They're early stage entrepreneurs. We've recently really focused on as an organization working with early stage startups, people, folks in a garage who have a novel yeah. idea. Yeah. So this is absolute gold dust. And I'm thinking now, I can't get this any way up, cup out of my mind. So it's, and I know you've got a bunch of other successes as well, but in those in those years when you've got the design you filed your patents what was it like in terms of building a team and recruiting like did you have recruitment experience on yeah i've got to go hire that engineer and they're expert at cad and now i've got to hire someone in business development and, and marketing what what did that process and that journey look like when you're trying to recruit and and build your team which because a common theme seems is you were able to assemble a great team and deploy certain things in certain directions and get the, the plate spinning. So yeah. how do you do that? Because I know recruitment's tough. It, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't, um, I've never gone through sort of formal recruitment agencies. Um, I've generally been introduced, it's about networking. Um, you get introduced to people and may, maybe they're not the right sort of person, but you have a conversation and that leads you to somebody else. Um, I'm sure there's better ways. There must be quicker ways, but that's how I've always worked because you have to find the, the right, it, everything depends on the right people. And it is so easy to find the wrong people and the wrong partners. And believe me, you know, I've had my fair share of wrong partners. Um, For me, anyway, I can't talk for anybody else. For me, it's worked by being, having conversations and and being introduced to people. And then when you meet the right person, somehow you know they're the right person. Um, I mean, my current CEO is a perfect example of that. I met him through a chance meeting I was having with a solicitor about something completely different. I think we're doing wills or something. Um, and he asked me how business was going. And I said, well, you know, explained to him where we were and what we were doing. I was looking for a new CEO. And he said, I want to put you in touch. I've got this friend who's, um, you know, he's told me about this background, his financial background and um, how successful he'd been in the States. Um, and that he was now looking to work with small companies. Um, so, you know, it was this sort of chance comment. And we met and I thought, you know what, this is exactly what I need. It wasn't somebody who 
was just going to do more of the same in the same way that we'd done things before. It was somebody who was looking at it from a completely different perspective. And it just clicked and it worked. Um, and we work really well together. Um, and similarly, my, my chief engineer, um, I was introduced, I was working, helping out an, another mum who'd had an idea and was trying to bring her product to market. Um, and I was helping her out, mentoring and, and working with her a bit. Um, and the person that put us together, he said, uh, there's this guy who I think might be useful to you. And, and you know, I've been working with that guy now for, ooh, it's got to be about 10 years, I think. Um, it's just when it's right, it works. And when it's not right, you know pretty quickly. Mm, so, and are you still working with the same team today? So the, the new CEO I'm working with and my engineer is still my head of engineering. Um, and we have designers that we, I have sort of, the other thing which I, I find works very well is rather than employing, say, a whole team of designers, different projects require different skills and different experience. So I prefer to keep a sort of a loose network where I can call upon different expertise as I need it so that I don't become a massive company having to keep people salaried. And I don't become a company that has just got um, its design team that deals with every single project because they may not be the right people to deal with that project. So by keeping this sort of loose knit network and pulling in people as I need them, I find that works much better for me anyway. So now, where do you see yourself now in the next four or five years, Mandy? You've had this spectacular journey from 1980 with your first invention and in the early 90s and mid 90s with the Any Way Up Cup. What does, where is Mandy Haberman in our adventure in, in 2024? 2024, um, the products will be launched in Asia and hopefully going global and not just in Asia because they're capable of doing that. Um, I own all of that IP, which is great. Um, I'm working on two other projects, uh, which if they take off, I think will be very exciting. Um, I see myself as continuing to create intellectual property. Um, and I will eventually, I, I, th I think I'll retire. I mean, I thought I'd have retired six years ago, but I didn't. Um, I'm not sure I can turn off the inventing part of my brain to just sort of sit back and have the royalties rolling in and not think of new things. I, I think I'll always be thinking of new things. Um, I enjoy it too much. <laughs> where, where does that come from, Mandy? This creative mind, like, is it is it family upbringing or someone who inspired you when you were at the early part of your career? Have you ever reflected on why you're built the way you where you the way you're built? I was always creative. I mean, in terms of you know, I was good at art, and even, even as a very small child, I was winning awards and all that kind of thing. So the creativity was there. My mother was very creative as well. 
Um, but I think that my skill is more about problem solving um, and, and it's a creative approach to problem solving. So that's kind of how my creativity has manifest. Hmm. It, it's, it's quite personal, I think. I mean, I, I look at my upbringing as a child and my, my parents were people who were frightened by problems. You know, if something went wrong, they would just carry on with the problem. And I think that it was that aversion to, to that in what I saw around me as a child that made me have the need to find solutions. Um, so I, th I think it's quite a sort of deep psychological thing about problem solving. I can't stop myself doing it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just wired that way. Yeah. It, it is yeah. Like when, I've, when I meet entrepreneurs who've achieved what you've achieved, there is some story behind the story of why they're wired that way. It's not yeah. me here for hours. It, it, it's mind boggling, but it, it's just, um, there's so much in a mindset and drive required to achieve what you've achieved. So I think our audience would just be generally fascinated on if you've ever reflected on that. Yeah, I, I think you, you need a huge amount of determination and balls, quite frankly, um, <laughs> to, to get there. But I think it's, it's driven by, it's driven by passion. You know, I mean, I started out when I, I started out with the Haberman feeder. Firstly, I, I because, you know, the experience that I had with my baby that had these problems, she was failing to thrive. I mean, you know, she became skeletal. It was awful. And we went through the mill. I mean, it was emotionally awful. Um, and you know, anybody that goes through the experience of having a, a child with problems and illness um, it's it tears you apart and I felt really quite angry and passionate that, that there was nothing in the market that would work for her to feed her and that's what drove me forward to turning it into a product and I raised about 20,000 pounds this is back in the mid 80s um, by writing to companies and telling them about my daughter and telling them about what I wanted to do, not, not details of, of the invention, but what I wanted to do because I felt that I had a solution and I wanted to create a product. And in those days, companies just gave money and I, I raised 20,000 pounds. And I think part of the drive was, I felt a responsibility, you know, I, I'd taken this money. Um, I needed to actually, has something to show for it. I, I couldn't not do it. So I think that was quite a strong driver for me. I, I was discussing this actually with a loved one recently, Mandy, because you raise a, an interesting point. And thank you for being so passionate and sharing your story. Obviously, you went for a challenge um, as a young parent, and, and I completely understand it, but it must be such a difficult time. There's, I would say 95% of folks are not proactive and, and are not thinking of solutions and inventing and think, you know, what, I'm going to tackle this problem. I'm not going to sit here and and moan and 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 have and have self pity. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to be positive and and try uh, creating good out of this situation. Where do you get that from, Mandy? Because 
not everyone's built that way. It's just, we see it probably every day sometimes, sadly. Have you ever reflected on why you have that positive growth mindset? I don't know. It's, it's that's me. Um, I, I can't see a problem and then not do something about it. Um, so, I mean, I know, you know, lots of people have brilliant, brilliant ideas, but don't take them forward. I think you have to have a real driving force to make you want to go, you know, because it is a roller coaster and, you know, you do have to bang your head on a brick wall for hours and hours sometimes. Um, and it's not all fun and games and glory. There's, there's a lot of tears, blood and sweat along the way. And I don't, I, I think may, maybe deep inside me, there has always been this need to be successful, this need to succeed. Um, I've never been one to leave something half done. Um, I find that really hard. And, and there again, I mean, it, that also relates to knowing when to stop and let something go. I find that really hard. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can be working on something and you're so tied up with it that it becomes very difficult to look at it objectively. And I think that you, you have to do that. You have to look at it objectively and think, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for vanity? A lot of people do things for vanity. They, they take out a patent because they think, oh, I've got a patent. You know, this is my thing. It's never going to make any money. You know, I think objectively, you want to solve problems for people. You want to find, you want to create solutions to make life better. But you also can only do that if it's viable, if it's going to, I think the expression is if it's going to wash its face, if it's going to make enough money to make it worthwhile doing it. Because if it's not, you're on hiding to nothing. Um, so I think you have to have that objectivity. But I think the drive comes, I, I don't know, it's something that is in me and for whatever reason, um, upbringing or, or whatever um, I think that's what has pushed me on the um, the business with the bottle um, you know that was such a great product and there was such a market for that but we licensed it um, to a company that then sat on it and didn't do anything with it. it was not a good story but I, I ended up as being the last man standing on that and once I was the last man standing, I was able to turn everything around. And that's how this whole um, Asian partner company thing has, has come along. Yeah, it's that de determination to actually succeed. And your advice now to young entrepreneurs who have seen what you've achieved, the likes of James Dyson, they're creative, they're inventive, they feel like they've got the grit, but they're at the beginning of their journey. What would be your one or two killer tips, considering the environment we're in now, kind of hopefully post-COVID, fingers crossed, <laughs> yeah. to really make their dream a reality and, and potentially achieve what you've achieved within industry? I think... I, I think the, the big thing is do your homework, you know, um, make sure when you start out, I mean, you, 
you know, you have an idea and you're in love with your idea. Everybody is, is the way it goes. Make sure that you're not kidding yourself. You know, make sure that people are really going to want whatever the product or service, whatever it is. People are actually going to put their hands in their pocket to buy it. Because if there is an easier way of solving the problem or a cheaper way of solving the problem, particularly post-pandemic, you know, money is going to be tight. Um, if there's a cheaper way of doing it, that's what they'll do and they're not going to buy your product. So you have to be really objective. And as I said before, you know, the first thing you've got to do is do a really good search of prior use and prior art to make sure that you're not reinventing the wheel, to make sure that you've actually got something that has USP, something that's unique before you start. So I think those are the most important things. And I think for, you know, this is uh, International Women's Day. I, I think, now I, I don't know whether this is just me or with this is women in general. I can only speak for myself. And I, but I, I think this is something that women tend to do is you achieve something and you've achieved something great, but we don't focus on what we, we've achieved. Instead, we kind of move the goalpost and think, right, I've done that. Now what's the dinner? I think it's really important to pat yourself on the back occasionally. Um, you know, I take huge pride in what my, my kids achieve and what my husband has achieved. And I don't focus enough and actually take enough pride in what I've achieved. You know, my husband does. He's hugely proud of me. It's great. Mm. Um, but I think for women, it's really important to not underestimate your abilities. You know, you, you can fly as high as you care to dream, um, but have ambition. Don't, don't sort of... And unless you want something small, don't underestimate what you can achieve. But, and when you do achieve something, recognise it. Recognise that you've achieved something fantastic. Um, but yeah. Andy, this is so strange. You mentioned this a moment to just stand still, pause and celebrate. So, so Pat Snap and fingers crossed you'll see in the press some point in the next fortnight. We've achieved a pretty insane milestone as a business recently um and I, we, were having that, we, we were having that discussion literally today because myself uh founder of, of pat snap the founding team combined we've been mm. on this mission for nearly 42 years our combined team. oh my god <laughs> yeah it's a long time and i sometimes message him on whatsapp because some of what i don't see for a while because we're all at home now for a year and the founding team are in singapore uh china I'm here in the UK, in Greater London, and I sometimes do message them and say that, hey, how are things? I miss you. We should celebrate. But we don't do it enough. We were talking about that today. I'm like, really? stand, stand still and enjoy the blood, sweat and tears we've been through. So I, I think I need to invite you to one of our team talks, Mandy, if you're up for it. <laughs> I'd be up for that. <laughs> <laughs> because... It could be a whole book written on that. Stand still and celebrate what you've achieved for once and not always, yeah. oh, we've so got to go do this now because that's where the meeting went today. So, yeah. so, so that's so, interesting you mentioned that. Don't keep moving the goalposts. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually appreciate them. Yeah. 
Of course, Manny. Uh, well, Manny, I've really enjoyed the exchange today. A bit of fun now, a quick fire round. So it's so two areas that we cover. So in terms of books, what have you most gifted or highly recommend as a, as a purchase? I'm going to say a book which I haven't actually read yet, but I want to read, um, which is the biography of Josephine Baker. Um, and I'm fascinated by her. I've always found her fascinating when I've seen pictures of her. Um, but she was an African-American who was incredibly talented, but she was an innovative performer. She created a new, new way of, of performing. Um, so she was hugely successful. She, she came from, she was as poor as poor, you know, she came from St. Louis, very, very poor, nothing. And she became the richest black woman in the world. You know, that's quite an achievement. Um, not only was she this amazing performer, but she became a spy to help in the war effort in World War II. Um, and then she became a political activist for racial equality. Um, and she created something called the Rainbow Tribe. Um, I, I just think she's such a fascinating and such an amazing woman. Um, and I'm not even sure that young people today will have heard of her. So, yeah. Um, I, and I don't know if the book is well written or not. I'm not taking any... Um, making any recommendations on that score but um, I just want to learn about this lady because I think she's fantastic Wow and any other pieces in terms of business books or books focused around entrepreneurship oh gosh um, well there's millions of um, business books around um, I'm going to go a bit off piste here. Sure. I'm going to recommend a book called More to Life Than Shoes, which in fact was written by my daughter. So plug for her. But it's about <laughs> it, it's case studies of women who have achieved their dreams. And I tell you, I mean, I know my, my daughter wrote it, she's the author, but when I read that, it gave me goosebumps so many times because it, this is about women who, not just in business, it's women who um, in, for, have all different dreams. I mean, I've, one that comes to mind was she wanted to be a Skywalker, you know, on the, the wings of an aeroplane. She, she had her dream to do this and it's women who have gone through their battles and achieved their dreams of whatever sort of dream it was and I found that so inspiring and uplifting it's a wonderful book so I recommend that so more to life than shoes and that's by Nadia Finer and extraterrestrial life believer or non-believer and why? <laughs> I'm a believer, I'm afraid, <laughs> because I'm a very practical person. Um, extra, maybe you know, who knows? May, maybe in another universe, um, somewhere, some you know. There's certainly, you know, when you invent something, 
you've got to know that somebody on the other side of the world is having the same thought process as you at the same time. Um, and you know that that I learned when um, I was negotiating with my US licensee, one of my US licensees, um, and they turned up a patent, which when I first looked at the front of it, I thought that's my patent. It was so alike. In fact, it didn't work, but um, if there is life in another universe, they're probably sitting here having an interview like this right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mandy, I really enjoyed hearing your story today. Thank you so much for taking time out with the team here at PatSnap and, and let's stay in touch. And God, I don't feel today is long enough. I'd love to invite you back if you're open to it because I've got so many questions in my mind I'd love to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. So if you're open to it, would love to do a part two. Yeah, I'd love that. would be fun. Awesome. Well, Mandy, pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. And that is it for today's episode with Mandy Haberman. We'd like to thank Mandy so much for taking the time out and sharing with us her story and wisdom here on International Women's Day. Thank you all for listening and subscribing to the podcast. If you have listened so far and enjoyed today's content, if you want to learn how to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then for today's episode, you can download your free copy of our ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we will explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world. In order to get that resource, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is patsnap dot com forward slash blueprint thank you again for listening to today's episode if you enjoyed the content hit that subscribe button share this out with one person who you feel like would be truly impacted by today's episode we'll be back again with another one until next time continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious <laughs> <laughs>